it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Tuesday, March 15th, 2022. My name is Guy Benson. And from the Big Apple, New York City, and Fox News headquarters worldwide, this is the Guy Benson Show. 3 to 6 Eastern every weekday, those three hours, and then around the clock on demand on our podcast. It's all at GuyBensonShow.com. Many ways to listen, either live or delayed through the podcast. GuyBensonShow.com. If you don't know me or you're new, come on in. The water's fine. We are really happy that you're here. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Let's keep this show growing together. I'm the political editor at townhall.com, a Fox News contributor. I'll be on the panel this evening for Gutfeld at 11 p.m. Eastern on Fox News Channel. Looking forward to that. In fact, one of our guests later today will preview Gutfeld this evening. And as I've mentioned, as you've probably gathered, I host this program every weekday. The lineup today here on the radio Jesse Tarlov is back from maternity leave. She was on the five yesterday, looking fantastic. We will talk to her coming up in the next hour. We will also catch up with Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg on the military progress or lack thereof of the Russians in Ukraine. That is also in our middle hour. In the last hour, Kat Timpf, our friend and colleague, co-host of Gutfeld, she will be here in studio talking about, well, really, who knows what with Kat. And that's always going to be fun. Plus a story later on that I really want you to hear. It is written and published in the Washington Post. So a tip of the cap that they've written this story. It talks about a school district, and this is one of many, that bucked the blue state Fauciist trend when it came to schools, keeping schools open, mask optional in many cases, and how they fared both on health and on academics versus other places that did the opposite. I feel like this story in the Washington Post is really a vindication for a lot of what we've been saying. Not that we need even more data, but I think it drives the point home. And the story is devastating to the cult, the restrictionist lockdown cult that did a lot of harm, a lot of damage to a lot of kids based on no good data at all for far, far too long. We will read extensively from that story coming up later on today's show. We begin with a Fox News alert. And this is a follow-up to the way that we started the show yesterday, and it is not the way that we wanted to begin either show. We told you at the top on Monday that one of our colleagues, Benjamin Hall, had been injured in some way in Ukraine, in the vicinity of the capital city, Kiev. Details were spotty. We just knew that he was hospitalized. I read you a statement from the Fox News CEO, Suzanne Scott, and that was all the information that we had. And we encouraged people to pray for Ben and for his family. 
Well, with him at the time was a cameraman who has worked at this network for a long time. Pierre Zakshevsky was his name. And earlier today, our CEO sent this email out to the entire team at Fox News, and I'm going to read it to you. Dear colleagues, it is with great sadness and a heavy heart that we share the news this morning regarding our beloved cameraman Pierre Zakshevsky. Pierre was killed outside of Kiev, Ukraine. Pierre was with Benjamin Hall yesterday news gathering when their vehicle was struck by incoming fire. Let me just pause there for a moment. We had such scant information yesterday. It was unclear was Benjamin Hall wounded? Was did he, you know, have an accident of some sort and break his leg or something? We had no idea. This is now more information. The vehicle that our team was traveling in was struck by incoming fire in Ukraine. Back to this missive from Suzanne Scott. Pierre was a war zone photographer who covered nearly every international story for Fox News from Iraq to Afghanistan to Syria during his long tenure with us. His passion and talent as a journalist were unmatched. Based in London, Pierre had been working in Ukraine since February. His talents were vast, and there wasn't a role that he didn't jump in to help with in the field. From photographer to engineer to editor to producer. And he he did it all under immense pressure with tremendous skill. He was profoundly committed to telling the story and the bravery professionalism and work ethic he displayed were renowned among journalists at every media outlet. He was wildly popular. Everyone in the media industry who has covered a foreign story knew and respected Pierre. Last year, he played a key role in getting our Afghan freelance associates and their families out of the country after the U.S. withdrawal. In December, at our annual Employee Spotlight Awards, Pierre was given the Unsung Hero Award in recognition of his invaluable work. Jay Wallace said it best this morning, Pierre was a constant in all of our international coverage. I, like countless others, always felt an extra sense of reassurance when arriving on the scene and seeing him with a camera in hand. The legacy of his positive spirit, boundless energy, and I for the story will carry on. That's a quote from Jay Wallace, one of our other top executives here at Fox. Suzanne Scott writes, we extend our deepest condolences to Pierre's wife, Michelle, and family. Please keep them all in your prayers, and please continue to pray for Benjamin Hall, who remains hospitalized in Ukraine. We will continue to be in touch with any further updates as needed. Today is a heartbreaking day for Fox News Media and for all journalists risking their lives to deliver the news. I leave you with pictures of Pierre in the field doing what he loved, and then she includes a number of photographs. With heartfelt sympathy, Suzanne. So, needless to say, this is just horrendous. I never met Pierre. He was based abroad, overwhelmingly worked abroad. But there are people at this network, colleagues, who have worked with him through the years who are lining up to pay tribute To this man. I've seen tweets from many of our foreign correspondents. I saw a little while ago Martha McCallum 
expressing her disbelief and sadness, having worked with Pierre when she has been in the field in London, for example. And it does seem that this was a man who was profoundly respected and loved by many, and he has been killed in the line of journalistic duty when a vehicle carrying at least Pierre and also Benjamin Hall was struck by incoming fire. I don't know the precise details of that. We still do not know the exact condition of Benjamin Hall. So all we can say is rest in peace to our colleague and that we pray that Ben and anyone else affected by this will pull through and just pray. Pray for the well-being of people who might be fighting for their lives. We don't know who else was affected by this. Pray for family members who must be going through hell. It's a very, very dark day. We've been covering this war now for more than two weeks, and it's not just academic. It's not just some geopolitical game of chess. There are real people fighting, real people dying, people being held hostage right now by the Russians. We read you the story in the New York Times just the other day about a family that was almost completely wiped out trying to make it across the remains of a bridge leaving only the father and husband, now widower, behind. Now the tragedy has hit even closer to home with a colleague killed and another colleague in the hospital. And we will bring you as much information as we can as we have it. We're trying to be sensitive and accurate and timely while also respecting the privacy of the families and getting this all right. So... That's all I have for you on this. Just a a few more little nuggets of information about what happened and that horrible, horrible outcome involving a Fox News cameraman of many years. Meanwhile, in that theater, in that war, there are things happening. A number of EU leaders have now announced planned visits to Kyiv the capital city of Ukraine, in the middle of the war, going to Kiev to meet with Zelensky to make a statement, obviously. This includes the leaders of Poland, the Czech Republic, and Slovenia. And that's something I want to ask the lieutenant general about later in the show. Because These are world leaders. If anything were to happen to them, would that by definition, expand this war into a NATO conflict. We'll get to that later on when we spoke, or rather when we speak with Keith Kellogg. Meanwhile, Zelensky, President Zelensky of Ukraine, is going to address the U.S. Congress tomorrow. That's scheduled for tomorrow morning around 9 a.m., a joint session of Congress. He's going to beam in via satellite, and I'd imagine it will be a packed house. We will have coverage of that on Fox News Channel. Earlier today, Zelensky addressed the Canadian Parliament in Ottawa. He did something last week with the Brits in London. He's making the rounds, speaking to the representatives of the people in free countries around the globe. Here's part of what he told the Canadians earlier in Cut 38. 
each city that they are marching through, they are taking down Ukrainian flags. Can you imagine someone taking down your Canadian flags in Montreal and other Canadian cities? I know that you all support Ukraine. We've been friends with you, Justin, but also I would like you to understand and I would like you to feel this, what we feel every day. We want to live and we want to be victorious. We want to prevail for the sake of life. Can you imagine when you, when you call your friends, your friendly nation, and you ask, please close the sky, close the airspace, please stop the bombing. How many more cruise missiles have to fall on our cities until you make this happen? Begging for air support. Now, I understand why he's begging. I understand why he wants a no-fly zone imposed by the West. I also understand why, in my opinion, it is the right decision not to grant that, even though it is so painful to say no, because that would mean a war with Russia. That is not something that the American people want or that the world needs. But you can't fault the guy for asking. And that was a very... I'd say dramatic and poignant illustration saying, imagine your cities being invaded, your flag being taken down. Stirring stuff. And when he was done, Zelensky got a three-minute standing ovation across the aisle. Not a partisan event, unity in support of Ukraine north of our border. A three-minute standing ovation is long. And again, he will be talking remotely to Congress, our Congress, Tomorrow, Zelensky also, in a video that he put out yesterday, made an appeal to Russian soldiers, basically urging them to surrender, saying that we will treat you well. Please surrender rather than risk getting sent home in a body bag. It was basically his message. There are widespread reports of very poor morale among many of the Russian soldiers. Some of their top leaders keep getting picked off on the battlefield. There's a lot of reporting that many of them are going hungry that they can't feed or fuel their people and their equipment. So Zelensky is essentially telling these soldiers, give up. Give up, we will treat you well and fairly, or we're committed to killing you. That's his message to the soldiers, the invasion force in his country. Finally in this segment, I think a very interesting statement that was made in an interview by Zelensky. This was earlier today. According to Ukrainian news outlets, he said this, quote, We realize that Ukraine will not become a member of NATO. We understand this. We are adequate people. Kyiv needs new formats of interaction with the West and a separate security guarantee. So that reads to me at least like something of a potential concession by the Ukrainian government, could this be an off-ramp for Putin if he actually wants one? It seems very clear now that this is not, this war, this invasion, was not really about Russia being worried about the Ukrainians joining NATO and all these preposterous excuses and lies about, oh, this is about our security and peacekeeping. That's all BS, obviously. But one of the at least stated goals of the Russians is to make sure that Ukraine doesn't join an organization 
a mutual defense pact like NATO. And here's Zelensky saying, "Okay, we recognize, we realize Ukraine will not become a member of NATO. We understand that. We want to maintain close ties with the West. We need security guarantees. So there would still be, I think, an alliance. And for obvious reasons, they need alliances. But maybe not officially through NATO. Could that be an attempt at an olive branch? Are the Russians looking to take an olive branch at this point? Time will tell. I'm Guy Benson. This is The Guy Benson Show. So much to get to on the program today. Please stay tuned. We will be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Fox News Radio On Demand on the Fox News app. Download the app and just click listen. When you swipe left, you can listen to your favorite Fox News talk shows live. Swipe right for the latest Fox News Radio newscasts on demand. Fox News Radio on the Fox News app. Download it today. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Fox News alert. And... I have to bring you this update. We have gotten another email from Suzanne Scott, the CEO of Fox News. There is a young woman named Sasha Kushnova, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing her last name. Sasha was 24 years old, serving as a consultant for Fox News in Ukraine. She has also been killed alongside the cameraman that we mentioned at the top of the show, Pierre Zakshevsky, who died when a vehicle that this team was traveling in near Kiev was struck by incoming fire. Our correspondent, Benjamin Hall, remains hospitalized. That's the only update we have on his condition. But this young woman, in her early to mid-20s, was basically an outside consultant or an outside producer working for Fox, working with Fox. And this email includes a photo of Sasha standing beside Trey Yinks during an interview on the ground in Ukraine. And she has died from her injuries. Suzanne Scott says, we held off on delivering this devastating news earlier today out of respect for her family, whom we have just been in touch with. We extend our deepest condolences to them. With heartfelt sympathy, Suzanne. And thus, a very, very difficult few days here at Fox News gets more difficult. Did not want to start today's show this way, but that's the news. It's the Guy Benson Show. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. You're listening to The Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for being here every day. 3 to 6 Eastern, round the clock, free podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. Well, I saw a story that I wanted to share with you because it goes back to another major controversy in our politics. 
that was discussed on this program a lot leading up to last November's gubernatorial election, for example, in Virginia, where Republican Glenn Youngkin won. His opponent, the Democratic nominee, Terry McAuliffe, was going with this sort of left-wing teachers' union line that parents concerned about radical indoctrination in schools were lying, were wrong, and were, in fact, quite possibly racist. Right? That is what the Democrats and many in the media have been insisting. And unfortunately for them, and fortunately for the truth, they are running into a buzzsaw of parents who actually know what's happening because they're seeing it in the curricula and the lessons of their kids. And a lot of it, it was an eye-opening experience when their kids were home from school. They could look over their shoulder literally sometimes at what was being taught. There was something of an awakening. And it wasn't just critical race theory or renaming schools or various equity projects or sexualized curricula for young kids or school closures, which was a huge one, obviously, or school boards not being accountable. It was a combination thereof. Now, on critical race theory, we hear a couple different things. Number one, oh, that's just a very narrow form of pedagogy, and it is only taught in law schools. And it's a lie to say that it's taught anywhere else. This is a conspiracy theory from right-wing reactionary racists, right? We hear that. And some of the same people also say, but critical race theory is good. And essential and very important. The way that we talk about CRT on this show is it's an umbrella term, a broad term that is used to describe racialized curricula, racialized inculcation of students in K through 12 schools in particular. Where it's identity fixated, skin color fixated, toxic sludge, as far as I'm concerned. That is very different then you know, pretending like, oh, this is uh, conservatives don't want slavery taught. Conservatives don't want any acknowledgement of racism in our past or present ever. That's, that's not true. It is this brainwashing, this obsession on identity. And introducing these thoughts and that whole mindset into classrooms, especially for young kids, that is what is offensive to many people and in the minds of many, has no place in the classroom. And yet the gaslighting, on and on, it's not true. It doesn't happen. These people are making it up. It's an invented, phony controversy. That's what Terry McAuliffe ran with in Virginia, and he lost because people could see it. They were renaming schools named after Thomas Jefferson. They were changing merit-based admissions standards explicitly for race reasons, right, like racial-specific reasons, and basically, you know, quotas. There was critical race theory mentioned specifically by name on the Department of Education's website in Virginia, while the man who wanted to be governor and who previously had been governor said, oh, it doesn't exist. It's not real. It was on the website of the education department in that state. And the list goes on and on. Like if we had to justify 
talking about critical race theory every time we have the conversation. We would do nothing but sit here and feed you one example after another from coast to coast of critical race theory and related type lessons and nonsense being taught in schools. You can go just state to state to state. One example that I like to give because I think it's just very clarifying, it speaks for itself. This was back last year in 2021, Dr. Nikolai Vitti, who is the superintendent of Detroit's public schools. So this is a large school district in a very well-known big American city. And at a public meeting, this was not, you know, him surreptitiously recorded. This is him publicly bragging about how important critical race theory is to everything that they do in Detroit's public schools. As you listen to his words, again, at a public meeting, you are allowed to just discard the lie that we are fed by people on the left that this is all in your head. It's all a fever dream on the right. They're just making it up to try to score points and stir up racial resentment and turn out their racist voters. These parents are delusional. This is the gaslighting that they attempt. And then a major superintendent of a major school system in a major American city says this in cut 33. Our curriculum is uh, deeply using critical race theory, um, especially in social studies, but you'll find it uh, in English language arts and the other uh, disciplines. We made, uh, we were very intentional about creating a curriculum, infusing materials, um, and embedding critical race theory within our curriculum. Our curriculum is deeply using critical race theories. You'll find it especially in social studies, but in other disciplines. We're very intentional about it, infusing, embedding critical race theory within our curriculum. That's not some conservative making a claim. That is a superintendent boasting of what they do in that school district, and that's not an outlier. So that brings me to the latest example that I wanted to share with you. I saw this tweet from a writer named Zaid Jelani. He tweets this, The state of Oregon is laying out standards that would require teachers to make kindergartners analyze their own and other students' race and other observable characteristics. And then to talk about what's happening in Oregon, he links back to a story that he wrote last year. He says, If you know... If you want to know, rather, how new racialism manifests in the real world, this is, I would say, under the blanket definition in my mind of critical race theory, look no further than Oregon's kindergarten five-year-olds. Five-year-olds. Kindergarten 2021 social science standards, which have been upgraded to integrate ethnic studies. Ethnic studies. It's no longer just a college major at some liberal arts school in California, ethnic studies is now being included as a requirement for graduation in a lot of high schools. We've seen this in California, for example. And now it's part of the kindergarten curriculum in Oregon. Standards like this 
lay out the knowledge, skills, and understandings that educators are expected to impart to their students. Teachers use them as a rough guide for composing lessons for the year. Although Oregon schools are not required to implement these new standards on race, until 2026, they have been approved for classroom use as of March of 2021. The kindergarten 2021 standard definitively steps away from colorblindness and towards racialism. One of the things that the teachers are told is, quote, teach the kids how to identify examples of unfairness or injustice towards individuals or groups, identify possible solutions to injustices that demonstrate fairness and empathy. They want kids to develop an understanding of their own identity groups, including but not limited to race and gender. This is for kindergartners in Oregon. Available and encouraged now, required a few years down the line. Now, we are told, we are assured repeatedly and often angrily that this kind of thing is not happening. We're out of our minds for saying that CRT is real and a problem and offensive and poisoning kids' minds with identity stuff at a very tender age. Then you get an example like this, and the argument almost immediately from some of these people pivots to, well, why do you have a problem with that, you racist? Why wouldn't there be a situation where you would want kids to think about their identity and learn how to be empathetic and identify examples of injustice? Have these people ever been around five-year-olds? Like, let's teach the kids how to count. Let's teach them the alphabet and the basic building blocks to reading. Let's make sure that they have enough time to get some rest and to play and socialize. Like, these people, broadly speaking, they're sort of like these progressive radicals for the last, what, two years have wanted these children either out of school or sitting separately wearing masks while being told to think about their identity groups, their skin color and injustice. It's crazy. It's happening. In my definition, my conception, it is CRT. And they tell us CRT is not happening. And if this stuff is happening, it's good. Shut up. You insensitive racist, you bigot. And if you're mad about it and you go to the school board meeting to complain about it, well, you might be a domestic terrorist. Let's get the FBI involved. I'm not even exaggerating. We've all lived through this. The writer that I mentioned before, Zaid Jelani, later in his piece said this, talking about why he, as a person of color, really resents the racialization of curricula and a move away from colorblindness, right? Judging people on the content of their character, not the color of their skin. He says, I grew up as both a racial and religious minority in the deep South. I grew up as both a racial and religious minority in the deep South. But he goes on, I knew I had some differences with my classmates. 
But the school system I was raised in emphasized color blindness. I was seen as co-equal with my classmates, treated no better, no worse. I wasn't the Pakistani Muslim who needed to be treated or thought of as a Pakistani Muslim, whatever that would entail. I was Zaid. Zaid was just another classmate who was who he chose to be. That's what Jelani wrote. Acknowledging I was a little kid, Pakistani Muslim, a minority twice over in the Deep South, but where he was raised, he was treated exactly the same and not taught to obsess about this and to see himself differently and for the other students to see him differently. Perhaps through this prism of oppressor and victim, that is not how he was raised in his community, and he's upset, obviously, that kids are now being forced into this stuff in a way that is harmful. Don't let them lie to you by pretending that these things don't exist. Don't let them lie and make you feel like the crazy one. This is the definition of gaslighting, where you simply see things that are happening. You hear them bragging that they're doing it. You object to them. And they tell you out of one side of their mouth, you're nuts, it's not happening, and out of the other side, and if it is happening, it's good, and you are to sit down, or you're in the problematic camp. There's also this, National Review reported this, I saw it yesterday, out of Wisconsin, school districts in uh, school district, rather, in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, the teachers there are being instructed to hide their students' changing gender identities from parents on the grounds that, quote, parents are not entitled to know and that it is knowledge that, quote, must be earned by the parents, according to leaked training documents. The training also encourages teachers to become activists, vote, demonstrate, protest. I recently talked about this Florida bill that's a controversy, which opponents, I think, are wrongly calling don't say gay and proponents are saying it's parental rights. And I... Last week, opening segments of the show, you can go back and listen on the podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. You can go read my Twitter thread about this. I tried to thoughtfully go through and explain what I supported, what I didn't support within the bill. But what we see here in Wisconsin is treating parents explicitly as hostile entities, as a matter of official policy. That's different than some of the concerns I have about the Florida bill that perhaps the way the verbiage is written that schools would have to out students to their families or betray a confidence that could be sort of viewed and implemented as mandatory. Betraying a confidence this way is very different than, as I said, treating parents as hostile entities from whom things should be as a matter of policy and a matter of course hidden and withheld. There are things happening in schools that parents have every right to know about, every right to be concerned about. And the louder they scream that it's all not true and you're the one losing your mind, you're the weirdo, that's a red flag. So I feel like a lot of what we do on this show is just pushing back against gaslighting. 
with facts and information. And I wanted to do that here once I saw this uh, Jelani piece about what's happening in Oregon and then another subject, a related subject, but different, out of Wisconsin. It's real. It's happening. It's an issue. It's a live issue for good reason. And schools ought to be a major issue again in November. It was something of a game changer last November. It needs to remain one heading into the midterms because a very powerful message needs to be sent at the federal and state and local level. Parents matter. Parents have rights. Parents have authority over their own children. These officials work for taxpayers and parents and families, not vice versa. And a lot of people apparently haven't learned that lesson yet, and they need to be made to learn the lesson. And that is done in this country at the ballot box, so let's do it. The Guy Benson Show is back right after this break. Guy Benson will be right back. You're listening to The Guy Benson Show. We don't have time today to get to this story in earnest, but I plan to cover it more extensively this week. We are working on getting our colleague Bill Malugin back here to discuss it. But here's the headline from today. Border encounters with illegal immigrants at the southern border in February spiked 63 percent over last February. So a year ago, there were 102,000 encounters at the southern border. In February, this past February that just ended, that number swelled to one hundred and sixty five thousand, including a lot more unaccompanied minors. This crisis is getting worse. It's because of Biden policies. And we will bring you much more on this subject in the days to come. It's the Guy Benson show. Stay here. city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative guy benson show a brand new hour on the guy benson show underway here from new york city i'm in new york today and tomorrow for some tv responsibilities including tonight gutfeld i'll be on the panel in the 11 p.m hour eastern time looking forward to that GuyBensonShow.com, our website here at the radio show. The podcast is available on demand each and every day. GuyBensonShow.com, your one-stop shop for everything related to this program. Fox News alert as the 4 o'clock hour gets going. Just seven minutes ago, the markets closed a few blocks south of here on Wall Street. And the Dow recovered some of the ground that it has lost in recent days. Finishing up in the green, 599 points to 33,544. Joining us here on the show is Jessica Tarlov, Fox News contributor, head of research at Bustle, now co-host of The Five on Fox News Channel. Coming up here in just about an hour is the show. She's not on every day. She's also chief romance correspondent and chief motherhood correspondent here at the show. It's just that she's got a lot going on. And it's been a while, Jesse. It's great to have you back. Do we have Jesse? Yes. Sorry. 
sorry. Oh, I no worries. Was muted, I guess. It was me, not you. Thank you so much for having me, is what I said. <laughs> oh, well, we're very glad to have you back. And you were kind, I'll just point this out, you were kind to occasionally step away from your maternity leave to hop on the phone and chat with us over the course of the last couple months. We didn't call on you, hopefully, all that often or too often. But yesterday you were back on the five. I have to say you were looking fabulous. Are you? Oh, thank you. Are you feeling like you're you're sort of back in fighting shape and ready to go? I mean, no, my spanks were doing <laughs> way more work than they had been before. But I was in a dress that was purchased before I had a little human, so uh, that was an accomplishment. But it was great to be back. So I have to say, you know, when you're you've been out for a while, you think like, oh, maybe I can have a slow news day and like talk about Tom Brady coming out of retirement, and then it's just. Ukraine and the, you know, the horrors of what's going on over there all the time. And it uh, really kicks you in the butt um, to have to get up to speed fast. And um, it's, it's just horrifying what's going on. Yeah. And we opened the show today. Well, yesterday we opened the show with the news of some sort of incident leading to the wounding or injuries sustained by our colleague, Benjamin Hall, near Kiev. Mm-hmm. And then today we opened the show with the news that his cameraman, our colleague here at Fox News, Pierre Zakshevsky, was killed by incoming fire when their vehicle was struck. And then we learned a short while later that another colleague who was working as an outside sort of producer and consultant for Fox was also killed in that same incident. She was only 24 years old. And Jessica, it is I did not know Either of those people, I do know Benjamin a little bit, and, you know, it's at, at the risk of sounding myopic and saying like, oh, well, you know, this this hits close to home. This is hitting a lot of people in horrifying ways, but still all the way across here in the United States to have this happen to one of our crews is just horrifying. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's something that we can't find more words besides horror and horrifying just over and over again. It feels like you're just on a daily basis getting kicked and we're safe at home here. And um, the news yesterday about Benjamin that came out what during your show and right before we went on the five and we still don't know what what's going to happen there and know that it's serious. Um, and I just like, heart goes out to Pierre and all those families. And um, we have four journalists who have been murdered so far. And we do know that the van that Benjamin um, and his team were in was labeled press clearly. So that's obviously an escalation of what uh, the Russians are doing in Ukraine. And I I don't, I don't see where or how this ends, uh, which is one of the more disturbing parts of all of it. The video that I'm sure you've seen by now, Jesse, of a journalist holding up an anti-war sign live on the air, Mm -hmm. interrupting basically a broadcast of the state TV in Russia, one of the big channels that they have over there. It's being shared far and wide. I've seen it on Fox News Channel sprinkled throughout the coverage today. Here's what it sounded like. This is all in Russian, but it's short. Cut 39. Российский премьер подчеркнул, надо усилить сотрудничество в рамках союзного государства, а на совещании в правительстве обсуждали, как сохранить доступность лекарств. And they just cut away. She 
was able to shout in the background holding up a sign, a placard with some anti-war slogans on it for, you know, eight seconds or something before they cut away. She's been arrested. She said, among other things, don't believe the lies. The poster said, no war, stop the war, don't believe propaganda. They lie to you here. Russians against war is all, of course, in in Russian. And this woman had made and recorded a video of herself before the incident, knowing that she would be arrested, explaining why, explaining the guilt that she feels having worked in state media in Russia, talking about why she is so disgusted by what's happening in the name of Russians. And I know that at least so far she's only been fined, but that was a pretty dramatic and and quite brave thing to do. Oh, it was uh, definitely in a a conflict where we've seen a lot of bravery, certainly on the Ukrainian side. It was one of the ballsiest things we've seen any Russians doing. And obviously tens of thousands of them have actually been uh, arrested across St. Petersburg and Moscow uh, for protesting. But when you think about what she did and at this particular time when Putin is relying now only on state TV and propaganda, right? That they've been cut off from the rest of the world, mostly because American companies have pulled out. Um, so people can't go on their Twitter. They can't go on their Instagram or, and see some truth. Uh, it brings my mind to watching them take away Navalny, who's essentially the Russian opposition leader who's been imprisoned, I guess we're close to a year now and has, a 15-year sentence for nothing, um, except for speaking out against Putin. And I'm frightened for her, especially as a woman, you know, what what goes on in those prisons. Um, and then there's Brittany Griner, the WNBA star, who's been imprisoned for a month now. And we right. barely, an American. we didn't hear about it, an American who has played in Russia during the WNBA offseason for seven years and was arrested about a month ago. And I, you know, she's a six foot seven uh, uh, queer woman, basketball player, a black basketball player, and is sitting in a Russian prison. And I I'm feel totally helpless for how to deal with any of this. You know, Jesse, when I'm thinking about not just what's happening in Ukraine, but what's happening inside Russia. You mentioned tens of thousands of people demonstrating, people now risking 15-year sentences. They've passed a law recently that speaking out and protesting the war is basically a serious felony. You can go to prison. And nevertheless, a lot of people are doing it anyway. This woman did it on national television. And I don't know if you've seen this phenomenon, but there there are videos of this where Russian police are stopping people on the street demanding to see their cell phones. And if you and if you don't let the police or the authorities rifle through your phone, you are arrested. There's also this phenomenon where people are simply holding up blank signs, signs that say nothing. It's just a a poster board and nothing else. They are being arrested because the implication is you are protesting and even if you're not explicitly using the words it's the symbolism so you're getting you know put in handcuffs there's one guy who held up a sign that literally said the words two words that was an arrestable offense i just i don't see how that's sustainable in in russia and if putin has this kind of problem on the home front with dissent, 
There are reportedly parents who are very upset learning about the, the deaths of their children. They had no idea that they were being sent off to invade a neighboring country. I mean, you can only sort of, I don't know, duct tape this thing together for so long. Huge problems on the battlefield in Ukraine, running out of fuel, running out of food, serious heavy losses being sustained. It, it just kind of feels like the thing is unraveling for Putin and for the Russian government, which on one hand makes me very happy. I would like to see it unravel uh, very badly and end terribly for them because they deserve it. But it also gives me a sense of anxiety because, you know, desperate cornered people can be unpredictable, especially if they're desperate cornered people with vast amounts of power and money and nuclear weapons. You know, that's an unsettling thought that keeps occurring to me. And I, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know either. I and mean, we were discussing exactly this point on the five yesterday that, you know, it can go one of two ways with Putin. And many Russian Russia scholars have been cautioning people against saying, you know, Putin's insane, he's crazy, blah, 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 because that this is not this is someone who is losing and didn't expect to. But it doesn't necessarily mean that he's lost his mind. So the two ways it could go, that he could be someone who is willing to die for this cause, right? Like he, you know, blown up in the Kremlin or wherever. I don't know where he is. I assume he's not in the Kremlin at this moment. Or maybe there is some way to broker an exit strategy for him that leaves him, you know, gives him the eastern provinces that he wanted, um, which it seems like Zelensky is open to doing. And allows him to stay in power another 10, 12 years, because that's what people like this crave the most, right, is power. And I'm sure he's frightened to death of the idea of not being in charge. And, I, you know, finding those terms, and obviously there's news, there are the three uh, NATO-allied prime ministers that are visiting Kiev today with yep. Zelensky. And then there's going to be the big meeting on March, uh, what is it, at the end of the month, in Brussels, which it sounds like that's what President Biden is going to attend. And, and I hope he goes as many places as possible. I think, you know, a picture of him on the border, um, you know, the Polish border, Romanian, wherever is going to be hugely valuable. But, you know, they have they have to figure out a solution because there are innocents here on both sides. And what is happening to the fleeing Russians is also a travesty. I mean, the ones who are trying to get away and now their bank cards don't work. You know, there are reports of liberal Russians that are left with they have no access to their savings. And that's not fair either. Right. They didn't vote for this. They hate it. Um, and they're trying to leave and they're cut off. I, I approve of the measures. I think it's important to do it to try to choke the Russian economy as much as possible. Mm -hmm. But you can't not feel awful for the everyday Russians. Well, you've got those three NATO leaders meeting with Zelensky in Kiev today. Tomorrow, Zelensky will address a joint session of our Congress in Washington, D.C. at 9 a.m. Eastern. He will give a remote speech and there will be live coverage on Fox News Channel. Again, that's nine in the east tomorrow morning. Jesse, I wanted to talk to you about all sorts of things, including your maternity leave and your daughter and maybe some stuff about polling and politics and another inflation number that came out today that's just brutal. But this is the number one story. You've been off the air, uh, you know, because of your daughter and having given birth for, for a period of time. And we hadn't talked about this yet. So 
Uh, we went down that path. I'm glad we did. I'm sure we'll continue to talk about it. And we're just glad to have you back on the air and look forward to next time already. Oh, thank you so much. Um, it's great to be back. And I look forward to talking about a whole range of subjects with you in the coming months. Um, now that I'm, you know, full time, all the everything correspondence. <laughs> Indeed. Jessica Tarloff on The Guy Benson Show. Jesse, hang in there. Uh, great to hear your voice. We will take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. You're listening to The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. So in that last segment with Jesse Tarloff at the very end, I mentioned there was some new data on inflation that we didn't get around to, but I wanted to bring it to you anyway. U.S. producer prices rose 10% in February. So that is now double-digit inflation on that metric, a big one. 10% inflation in February on the producer side. I also saw a statistic that U.S. consumer sentiment is at an 11-year low right now. And uh, you can see why. This, This is not a crazy position for people to be feeling very dark things because the outcomes, the results, the numbers are bleak. And in the meantime, as we are winding down, we hope, from the COVID pandemic, I saw this story from ABC News that made me very angry. Here's the headline. White House says first cuts to COVID efforts will hit Americans next week as funding stalls in Congress. Subheadline, the Biden administration has warned for weeks there is not enough money left. Let me read to you from the start of the story, and I wonder if you can start to formulate where I might be headed and formulate some thoughts about why I might be so insulted by all of this. But here's the story. Americans will feel the impact of Funding cuts to U.S. COVID responses next week, according to senior administration officials, as efforts to get more money from Congress sit stalled. The first impacts will be felt by uninsured Americans who will no longer be able to submit claims or tests or COVID treatments starting next week, they said. In two weeks, claims to cover vaccinations will no longer be accepted, meaning the program that has been covering people without insurance throughout the pandemic will effectively end. Anyone seeking monoclonal antibody treatment for COVID will also face a tougher battle starting next week, officials said, when the government plans to cut supplies to states by 30 percent. And a new purchase for hundreds of thousands more monoclonal antibody treatments planned for March 25th will be canceled, senior officials said. So what's happening here? is you have the White House demanding that Congress spend a lot more money. They're pleading with Congress to allot billions more on COVID relief. And because that is stalled and hasn't been happening, the White House, this kind of reminds me of the games that Democrats play on government shutdowns, partial shutdowns, where they start saying, ooh, we're going to do some painful stuff, and we're going to put that stuff at the front of the line and make it as painful as possible so we get what we want. This is... This is the racket. They're doing it with COVID relief. Now, fortunately, we're past the worst of it, it seems. We're past the Omicron wave. Hopefully, a lot of this stuff, the tests, the 
antibodies, all that won't be as necessary moving forward. But they're kind of saying, oh, well, sorry, if it, we have to start cutting this stuff because we're not getting the funding that we need from Congress. So bye-bye to this, bye-bye to that. It's going to be painful. To which I say this, where the hell did $6 trillion go? We have spent, what, $6 trillion on COVID relief over the last two years under the last two administrations, including $2 trillion at the start of the Biden administration, $1.9 trillion. They said for COVID relief, a lot of it went to a lot of other stuff. A huge amount of that money, that $6 trillion, has not been spent yet. And they have the gall to tell us that they need billions more or it's going to run out. And sorry, they're going to have to start cutting COVID relief. Where did the money go? Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. As we continue on the program today from New York City, it is the Guy Benson Show. I'll be on Gutfeld tonight in the 11 p.m. hour Fox News channel. You can set your DVR or tune in if you would like. Joining me here on the radio now is Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, retired. Fox News contributor, former national security advisor to Vice President Pence. He also wrote the book War by Other Means, a general in the Trump White House. And it's great to have you back here, sir. Guy, thanks for having me. Good to be with you. I saw today this story, and one of our previous guests mentioned it as well. We talked about it at the top of the show. Three European leaders, NATO leaders, visiting the Ukrainian capital, meeting with Zelensky. I thought that was sort of a really impressive, gutsy show of solidarity Then my next thought was, well, what happens if something goes haywire and the Russians fire off a rocket or a missile and one of these people gets injured or killed? I mean, could that then trigger a war involving NATO? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, guy. No, I don't think if something happened to him, I don't think it'd uh, trigger a war with NATO at all. I, I but I do think it was, a, as you just made mentioned, it's, it's a gutsy move. It, it was a courageous move, and they're showing they're not afraid of Putin. I think this, what I like about this, this is pushback. It's something that we are not doing, and being very aggressive. I, we were worried about well, we're going to escalate. You know, I am sure that if somebody said to President Biden, well, maybe you ought to go into Kiev, or let's just go into Lviv, which is for much further to the west. Well, that's escalating. Who cares? I think this is great. I think the fact that the Polish leaders going in there uh, is really good, considering the MiG-29 issue everybody's talking about. Mm-hmm. It shows they're not afraid of of, of, uh, of Putin. I think it's a courageous move. I think it's a it's it's a move that you will see that will resonate with not only their populations but also with the rest of the the free world, that people are not afraid, and they shouldn't be. I think uh, it's just a dramatic move. And then I think. Can I I just ask a quick follow-up? Because I agree. I agree that it's the right thing to do, and I'm glad they've done it. But you were sort of dismissive there of the idea, like, let's say the Russians killed one of these NATO leaders while that leader was on the ground in Ukraine. Why are you confident that wouldn't lead to a, a war with NATO? Yeah, because it, guy, because it's not really an attack on their on their on the body, the, the country itself. So Article Five wouldn't come into play. And frankly, I think a lot of people would dismiss it as going, "Well, he's killed pregnant women, uh, mothers to be, and children. I, I did that and bought him to kill somebody else." And I, I think that's the risk they take, which is a good risk. But I also, I think you know, 
Kiev's not surrounded yet. It's still the southern routes are still wide open, and being able to get them in there, I'm sure they're going to have a lot of security to do it. But I don't think it would would trigger anything. It would just add more revulsion if there isn't enough already mm. to what Putin is doing. Uh, so I think it's a it's a very courageous move. I think it'll play very well politically to their home base to see what they've done because you we've all said the same thing. It's a gutsy move. And then I think tomorrow America is going to get kind of a vision of this guy Zelensky, who I, frankly I had the opportunity to meet when I was with Vice. President Pence, we went into uh, into Warsaw when there was a World War II commemoration. He's kind of a guy you want to have a beer with, and I, and I think uh, it's starting to really resonate. And the more people do this, guy, I really believe it. The more people push back against Putin, it pushes him further and further into a corner that he realizes the rest of the world is very dismissive of him. And I think somebody's going to start paying attention. The Russian people are going to pay attention, maybe, but the oligarchs will, and so will the Russian generals, and they're going to start picking up on this. Apparently, there's intelligence that the Russians have reached out to the Chinese for help. They need a lifeline, and the speculation would be they can't even feed their soldiers, right? There there are people unable to eat. There are people surrendering morale in Ukraine among the Russians apparently is is very low. They can't fuel their tanks and some of their other you know, uh, you know heavy vehicles and that sort of thing. So what they might be asking the Chinese for is food. Like, you know, immediately, uh, you know, ready to eat meals, uh, bullets, fuel, that kind of thing. Uh, The reports are that the Chinese are furious that this request has gotten out. This would be an intelligence coup again by the U.S. and Western intelligence if it's true. But it's been widely reported that there's at least some overture there going on. What do you what do you make of that? Are the Russians asking the Chinese for help? And what's the Chinese calculation at this point about whether they want to provide that help given how ostracized Putin has become with the rest of the world. Yeah, there's two tells here, Guy. The first tell is that if Putin is reaching out to the Chinese and to the Syrians, that shows how weak he is. That shows he he's understanding the difficulties he's having militarily. And if I was, uh, you know, looking at our side, I said this is an indicator he's having some significant issues. Militaries generally need to pause, refit, rearm after about 18 days. They're in their 20th day. They start things just start to wear out. People wear out. Equipment wears out. Food runs out. Oil runs out. Uh, fuel runs out. But here's one thing I would have done yesterday when Jake Sullivan met with the Chinese. That meeting wouldn't have gone for seven hours. I would have walked in there and said to the Chinese very clearly, you do something with the Russians right now. You are now a party to the dispute. In other words, you own this guy. And we already know you own him, but if you provide any support, if you thought things were bad now, things are only going to get worse. And I'd push back on the Chinese, make them feel, make them feel very uncomfortable, make sure they do not help Putin, because Putin's got nowhere else to turn. I mean, nobody else can really give him help economically or diplomatically or even militarily. And if the Chinese don't do it, He's a little bit on the ropes, and I I just get that gut feeling, guy, that he's having some significant military problems uh, right now. And well, they're uh, pretty apparent, right? He's losing generals. They can't fuel their machinery. They can't feed their troops. They haven't. Still, they haven't achieved any of their major objectives. And and it's two and a half weeks into this. Obviously, things are going quite badly for him geopolitically in the PR wars and even militarily on the ground. It's just been a disaster. And, you know, I was I was thinking about this out loud earlier on the show. I really enjoy on a gut level this idea of Vladimir Putin screwing this up so badly and losing in humiliating defeat and being backed into that corner that you just mentioned. But a cornered person 
can be very, very dangerous. You know, like, you know, a cornered rabid animal can be very, very dangerous and lash out, which is why I keep coming back to this question in my mind. And Zelensky, to me, seems like he's trying to start to hint in this direction. Is there some sort of off-ramp that could be given to Putin where he could claim with maybe some credibility to his people a a face-saving thing like, hey, look, we achieved this, and and he could kind of get uncornered but also get out of this mess? Is there something that can be done there that also wouldn't be a reward for what the Russians have done already? Yeah, you know, Guy, here's our problem. The answer is yes, and it's unfortunate that we don't have somebody that can really do that because he doesn't really believe so much in Macron, France, who's tried to do something. He, You know, he's done the same with Olaf Scholz of, of Germany. If we had a president that could pick up the phone and call him and say, look, this is what we want to do, is a, like a, for lack of a better term, peer-to-peer, uh, then maybe that could be done. The problem is Putin hates Biden. He doesn't respect him at all. And Biden will not pick up the phone and call him. And maybe we need an interlocutor somewhere along the way because nobody has got the the, the gravitas that Putin would demand, meaning ability to talk to him about it, because I think he's searching. And you're seeing that searching with Xi, searching with everybody else. He may be saying, how do I get out of this mess? And you're absolutely right, because, you know, when you corner somebody like that, I've always believed when you corner an enemy, give him an escape route to, to figure a way to get out of there to, to lessen the problem that you've got on your hands. And I don't think he's got an escape route right now because there's nobody there diplomatically that he can turn to. And it used to be he could turn to the United States. Or it used to be he could turn to the French, and he's not getting anything there, or even the British with Boris Johnson. So you're absolutely right. My fear is that I think the fear I've got is escalation, that he may do something really stupid, um, because they do have a military philosophy. It's written in their books of escalate to de-escalate, and you don't know what he's going to do to escalate. And th- that is a fear. In, in other words, like, like you know, use, use some sort of WMD or a tactical nuke yeah. or chemical weapons or something to really shock the world and then shock – the international community is saying, "Okay, oh, you know, cry, uncle. We've seen enough. Let's let's find out a way to get to peace, and and then maybe the concessions that he gets are are better. That that would be the mindset potentially." Yeah, that's exactly right. Because, see, they actually use, and I know it's, it's abhorrent for people, but they actually believe that they can use nuclear weapons to do this. Because they've got what are called sub-kiloton uh, yield nuclear weapons, small ones. Now, I don't believe I believe a nuke is a nuke is a nuke. A nuclear weapon is used as a nuclear weapon. But their philosophy is they've got these sub-caliber weapons, sub-kiloton weapons that are relatively small. We used to have in the American Army. It was called the Davy Crockett. We took them out of the Army inventory in the 60s because we didn't want a sergeant to start World War III. And and this is his way, and he could use it as, for lack of a better term, the term they use in the military is do a demonstration, you know, put it in the middle of the water right, somewhere. Right, you mentioned or, or, this last or, week. Yes, yeah, like, just get, walk away from it. Yeah. Uh, but you're absolutely right. And, again, if if we had some diplomat who he could turn to and say an interlocutor to do it, it worked. Like, you remember when, when uh, President Kennedy, the Cuban Missile Crisis, he actually had Bobby Kennedy as, his, as the guy that was working with DeBrinion and the others out there to help to bring this thing to a close. There's nobody out there to do that. And so that's my fear of getting to escalation. But it shouldn't paralyze us of pushing the envelope with this guy, put him into a corner where he has to ask for help uh, instead of just rolling over every time. Because if you don't push, you know, push back on him, he's going to continue to roll, and he may fail that way as well. Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, my guest on The Guy Benson Show. Last question. I saw a report last night that U.S. officials are now estimating Russian casualties, Russian dead, 
in Ukraine, ground forces, between six and 8,000. Put that number in perspective for us uh, in a way that Americans could maybe, I mean, because we understand 7,000 lives, that's a lot of lives. Based on the manpower that Russia has in their military, compare that number to, to losses on the American side in recent conflicts. To my eyes and ears, six to 8,000 seems like an awful lot of Russians to have already died in just over two weeks in Ukraine. Yeah, it, well, we didn't lose that many in um, in in Afghanistan. We were fought there. You know, the number we lost was about, you know, three thousand. Uh, and and this number, if it gets up to ten thousand, uh, it's going to match the number that he lost in Afghanistan when the Soviets were fighting there. And so this would be a, a significant number because these guys are not rookies. Look, if if you get to ten thousand, look, in a ten-year war. He lost 15,000 killed in Afghanistan. If he loses 10,000 in a month, that would be shocking to their military. Uh, and sooner or later, that's going to hit the civilian population because what broke the back of the Russians, eventually the Soviet Empire, was the fact that they lost in Afghanistan. Well, they can't keep replacing those numbers that they lose because these are his frontline troops. These are not the, the conscripts that he would have to bring in. Uh, everybody he has used is a frontline unit, and those are things you cannot replace because for everyone you get killed, you have to figure – we do it statistically – for every one dead, it's two to three wounded. So those numbers are potentially staggering. And if this thing keeps going on, it'll be worse because if he has to go into the cities, you generally you can attack. The ratio that you want to have when you attack is three friendlies to one enemy. If he attacks in a city, he's going to need a 10-to-1 ratio. And it's going to get bloody and it's going to get very bad for him. And his casualties will start to mount up. And I think that will affect the mothers of Russia yeah. like it did during the I don't even know if it's war. possible for them to have a 10-to-1 manpower advantage in some of these cities. I mean – they're losing so many people already to to wounds, to deaths, uh, people who are abandoning the battlefield, people who are surrendering. I mean, it just it seems like his options are maybe running out in a number of respects in a way that he was absolutely not expecting. Uh, hence, some of the reports of palace intrigue with intelligence officials, top intelligence officials being arrested or put under house arrest. And it seems like the finger pointing and the circular firing squad is underway already in Moscow. And that's not a place where they want to be while their troops are still trying to fight and win this aggressive war of invasion in Ukraine, which has really bogged down in a lot of ways, which I think is is great news for the Ukrainians and for the world. Very bad news in Moscow. And there's a lot of moving parts to this, which is why we bring in guests like Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg, Fox News contributor. Sir, we always appreciate it. We'll talk again soon. Thanks, Guy. Thanks for having me. The Guy Benson Show is back after this short break. Guy Benson will be right back. Here on the Guy Benson Show, Cat Timf upcoming in the next hour. It'll be a fun conversation. By the way, just to come back briefly, the story that I mentioned earlier in the hour, ABC News with this report, the Biden administration making these threats. Oh, we're running out of money. We're out of money on COVID relief. And we need that money from Congress. Give us more billions. Give us those billions. We're going to start cutting stuff. Oh, sorry, you need those tests? Well, we're not going to have those anymore. If you if you don't have insurance, I'm sorry. 
Oh, you need monoclonal antibodies if you get COVID? Well, we're not going to order any more of those. We can't. We have to cut. The more I think about it, the angrier I get. And I went back to check my own math, to check my own numbers during a break. We have allocated, Congress has allocated approximately $6 trillion on COVID relief fronts in the last two years. $6 trillion. That's like 150% of an entire year's entire federal budget crammed in on top of the regular spending, $6 trillion in additional spending just for COVID, they tell us, over the last two years. A year ago, they passed $2 trillion of Democrat-only spending. The Republicans said this is wasteful. This actually isn't COVID relief. Remember the talking points from the Republicans that the media, I guess, like didn't care about? The Republicans were saying, if you look at the bill, only a fraction of it goes to what a normal person would consider COVID relief. And a lot of the other stuff goes to like bailing out blue states with some like slush funds for states that were having, you know, budget shortfalls and have had that problem in the past. Or spending on schools, like a giveaway to the you know education bureaucracy years in advance that doesn't even get spent until like 2025 or something. The criticism of that $1.9 trillion bill, which was in addition to almost $4 trillion in other spending under Trump only for COVID, was that it was hugely wasteful. And then when there are new bills being passed, they repurpose unspent money for new things. We know a bunch of that money has not been spent, has not been spent, or is allocated for things that are not really COVID relief. And really, they have the audacity to come and tell the American people who've been through a lot in the last two years. And to say, well, it's because Congress and really the Republicans in Congress, like online blue checkmark Twitters, are, oh, this is all these, t- these tweets, these Republicans, or the Republicans are standing in the way. Democrats control everything. They passed a loaded up, pork-filled, non-relief bill, and they called it the American Rescue Plan. Remember that? They're going to rescue us from COVID. Two trillion more dollars. And now, a year after they pass that thing, they're crying poverty. Oh, the money's gone. We just don't have enough money. Sorry, you need these things. Sorry. It is insulting to our collective intelligence. They have not spent $6 trillion on COVID. They've allocated it. It has not gone out the door. And the stuff, in many cases, that it has gone out for or is earmarked for is not COVID relief. And now they're playing these games and basically making these threats, saying we got to spend billions more. I I can't believe after six trillion dollars this is actually what they're saying, but they are. That's DC for you. We we enough of this democratic governance. We need some changes in this country as soon as possible. Final hour coming up. Cat Tim next. 
Minute. Five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. From New York City, it's the happy hour on the Guy Benson Show on this Tuesday. Very happy to have you along every weekday, 3 to 6 Eastern. If you can't listen live as we air, there's a podcast that is free on demand every day, GuyBensonShow.com. Programming note, I'll be on Gutfeld tonight, 11 p.m. Eastern Fox News Channel. More on that in just a moment. But first, I remind you that this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is refreshing and delicious year-round. You can find out more, including where it's sold near you. They're expanding at thelongdrink.com. Thelongdrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. With me now in studio here in New York is Kat Tim, Fox News contributor, co-host of Gutfeld every weeknight at 11. It's back. And also co-host of the Tyrus and Tim podcast. Hello, lovely. Why, hello. I mentioned that you guys are back because really with the war breaking out, everything was wall-to-wall. Yep. Gutfeld was sidelined for a couple of weeks. Yep. Back yesterday for the first show. How's the vibe? Because <laughs> it's it's a very fun vibe typically to do right. the show, and I look forward to it. And I'm just trying to figure out how I should modulate tonight. Yeah, I wouldn't worry too much about modulating. I mean, it just kind of go with it. Because, again, at least, you know, we're taped, you know. So if something absolutely horrific comes comes out of your mouth we'll make sure that it gets cut out Mm -hmm. Uh, but it was weird because I was off air for two and a half weeks which I feel like I don't even I don't remember the last time I was off camp like for that long if ever since I started doing this and then like the first thing I'm talking about is this war which is devastating and then also I'm not like an expert on war right um so it, it was tough but our show is always more of a conversation. So it's it's not going to be like the same as, you know, the rest of the news channel, obviously, just because it's all of us, you know, sit in that circle kind of hanging out and, you know, jokes are OK. Now, it's but always not always the... an outlier by design. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, not all it, it doesn't have to, you know, it's, it's not going to be as, you know, jokey, maybe because given the topics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's been already a really rough week here yep, at Fox. Of course. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Absolutely devastating. So, um, but I think that it's good that the show is a bit of a break, even though it's not maybe as comedy focused Mm -hmm. as, you know, before there was all of this stuff going on. I think that just happens. But I think it's kind of good to have a break um, because it is, it is pretty much, it is wall to wall of all this stuff. Yeah. And I guess some of the shift in tone is organic when you're having a conversation and times are more difficult naturally the conversation is going to differ from like a Friday on a random week somewhere where the news cycle is relatively light. It's just going to be different. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm grateful to be back. I'm glad that you guys are back. I do want to ask you about what some people are calling the Gutfeld effect, the effect of the show on late night. And I'm not laboring under the delusion here that Greg is sort of holding feet to the fire on some of the other shows and by winning every night. Yeah. 
and beating almost all of them every night, maybe making them think maybe we shouldn't just be a giant echo chamber for one political side all the time. But there are a few indications where some hosts are saying some interesting things yes. lately. For example, Trevor Noah on The Daily Show was talking about this preposterous situation in the NBA. I don't know if you saw it, but there's this player who's refused to get vaccinated, Kyrie Irving. Yeah, He's against mandates. He's really been holding out on this. The rules right now in New York City stipulate that he is not allowed to play on the court because he's unvaccinated, but he can be a fan in the front row without a mask on rooting on the team. And then he went into the locker room after the game or before the game, and the city found out, and there's been a fine now levied for that. And Trevor Noah said things that are not, to me or to you, I would imagine, controversial, saying, this is ludicrous. Here's cut 35. I don't care, like, how COVID compliant you are. Like, this makes zero sense. Can we agree on that? Can we agree? What? So Kyrie can go inside, not wear a mask, even hug a teammate, but he cannot play. I don't get it. Why? Does the ball have a weak immune system? What's going on? I mean, it's crazy. Just think about it. Just think about it. Kyrie can't play, but he can sit in the stands, right, like a fan. And then as a fan, what happens if he gets picked to take the half-court shot to win the car? Can he do that? What are those rules? How does it work? It does make zero sense. I agree with what Trevor Noah is saying there. He also, in another monologue or another segment, was talking about how the Saudis, for example, are ignoring Joe Biden's phone calls are not taking them. He's saying, I don't think they would have done that with Trump because Trump's a wild card. Again, I don't think Greg and your show are necessarily dragging these guys into a new headspace. But even though that might be very belated mockery and analysis from Trevor Noah, it feels like things really have taken a turn. That's more probably events than anything else. But Gutfeld's out there, right? And they're not ignoring him completely. They can't, right? Right. And I think that I'm actually really glad to see it. Because, I mean, the Kyrie Irving, th- that Kyrie Irving thing is just, it makes no sense. Nobody can explain why. Nobody can explain why. Because there is no that's explanation. The rule. Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's the rule. And, uh, you know, I think that anybody who still supports a vaccine mandate like that, is, it's just a sunken cost fallacy, I think, because they went so hard against it. Because the whole thing was, yeah. you mandate it, so then you can't get it. And you'll spread it to other people. I had I was two shots, two COVIDs last year. So, like, I don't think that really holds up. And I don't believe in the mandate regardless because I believe in bodily autonomy. But even their only justification for it ever completely breaks down. And I think it's actually been really interesting to have that visual of him sitting there on the side in the same room. No, it's laughable. <laughs> well, no, it's like when you have these adult politicians posing in classrooms with children, that, smiling for the camera while the four-year-olds have masks on. Exactly. It, it is preposterous on its face. Like, you can't really spin it any other way. The The images speak for themselves. No one even really attempts to explain it on a scientific basis because everyone knows there is no scientific basis. No. And, and Trevor Noah saying what he said, great, half a clap for him. It was yeah. sort of funny. Does the ball have a weak immune system? Fine, not a bad line. But a lot of us have been pointing out exactly this kind of nonsense for, what, a year? Yeah. And for a long time, we were looked at sideways like we were crazy. Things that we said were like, oh, we can't put that on YouTube because they won't allow it. We're part of the problem. And I guess the permission structure has finally changed. 
Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. A lot of the things that you would you would get like banned from YouTube or be called an anti-vaxer. Right, science and, denier. Yeah, a denier. There's like if you're anti-mandate, that means you're anti-vax. Like I was always anti-mandate. I did get vaccinated. I think it's, I mean, I don't think. It is undeniable the difference that it makes in terms of hospitalization and death, particularly totally. for people who are at high risk. Huge difference. So, and I've, I've been saying that all along, but I've also been saying it's kind of yes. up to you. Because I got the shots and I had a uh, uh, March COVID and then I got a December COVID. So, like, clearly, and I didn't get sick. I would not have even known. Two shots, two variants. Two shots, two variants. I would not have even known uh, over Christmas that I had COVID. If we didn't get tested here all the, all the time, I would have had no idea I had COVID. And it's wild because, like, when you try to have these conversations and we do all the time on this show, we have doctors on the show. Yeah. So I will have a doctor, a well-respected doctor on this show. Talking about academic studies, like actual literal science, and there are people who won't want to listen to it or that information gets throttled or rejected because it falls under the rubric of anti-science. Even though it's a medical scientist talking about medical research and actual science, because all the definitions are so screwed up, that's sort of the way we are. Like right now – In the U.K., finally, for the first time in two years, basically, flu is a deadlier event than COVID because there's so much immunity in the U.K. from past cases and from the shots. And so now flu is a little bit more deadly right now in the U.K. than Omicron, for example. Saying that, even though it is a a fact, Dr. Scott Gottlieb tweeted it, that fact is still something that cannot be said in certain places and on certain platforms, which – is kind of mind-bending to me. Right, and I wouldn't care if it wasn't this, you know, it, it's like a weird cult, honestly. And I wouldn't care so much about whatever weird cult you want to be in, but the, this cult is, you know, impacting policy, and it affects people. People, you know, who did not not choose to get the vaccine, people lost their jobs. Uh, lockdowns that had negligible mm-hmm. to no impact on death rates shut down people's businesses. Even if you walk around New York City neighborhoods that used to be like, even like I walk around Hell's Kitchen and you walk around Soho, there's a lot of boarded up buildings there because people still, still, how could you afford to keep a business open when they won't let you open it? (laughs) And that's the thing. Like I'm fine with people coming around to a more logical, rational position on this stuff. Johnny come lately is whatever you want to call them. At least they're coming. I'd rather you do that than quadruple down on the failed stuff that you've already tripled down on. But I still don't think that they get all that much credit for ignoring the science and attacking anyone trying to have sort of a a rational conversation for a year and a half. And then it's like, oh, obviously this is the case now and we're all allowed to say it. It just it annoys me. I'd love to hear more. I was I was wrong. I I, I was wrong. Like, say that humans hate doing that though yeah i guess we all do but that that's a big one like i wasn't out there advocating stuff where people were going to lose their jobs for example and have businesses shut down like this stuff actually did have consequences it wasn't just people spouting off keyboard warriors it was a whole public health bureaucracy a lot of the media and then sort of this whole echo chamber from what you called the cult Super, super frustrating. Yeah, and two years ago, I remember whenever I was asked about lockdowns, I would always say that my opinion doesn't really matter that much because if, you know, I'm currently at work where I'm still getting paid to do my job. And there's so many people who are not in that situation. Because we could work from home. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I want to lighten things up a little bit here because 
this has been a relatively, by our standards, this has been an extremely serious conversation. I know. This has been the Lincoln-Douglas debates compared to what we normally do That's true. in these segments. Maybe it's because we usually do Fridays with Cat and it's Tuesday. That's true. So it's, it's not quite the same, but it is almost St. Patrick's Day. Okay. And it's coming up in just a few days. I don't know if you have any Irish in you. I, I do I'm, a little bit. Okay, a little bit of Irish. I'm not Irish. Producer Christine was... We'll talk about this later. Mysteriously out around St. Patrick's Day last year, and mm. she's also out today. She has some reasons that she's cooked up. Are you one who celebrates St. Patrick's Day regardless of your heritage because it's an excuse to kind of drink heavily and stumble around in public? Or how do you approach this holiday? I'll be drinking moderately because <laughs> it's on a Thursday and Fridays are my early day because we tape a little bit earlier. But because it is St. Patrick's Day, I'll be drinking where, whereas I would have not otherwise been drinking on a Thursday because okay. Friday is my early day. What about the, Friday night? Yeah, not kind of like that. But I mean, my husband is not Irish at all. Cam's not Irish at all. And he's like, man, I wish I had St. Patrick's Day off to have a real St. Patrick's Day. And I'm like, what do you mean a real yeah, St. Patrick's what does that Day? Mean? And, you have to remember and, the reason for the season. And it means what you think it is. He means walk around, go to bar crawls and blackout is what he meant. But unfortunately, <laughs> we're both employed. My, well, or fortunately. Fortunately, yeah, I would say. Depending on how you and, look at it. Yeah, absolutely fortunately. When I'm not working, boy, do I, I found that out the past couple of weeks. When I'm not working, I don't do well. You need some structure. I need some structure. You need some purpose. I need some structure or I just, I become. You're like one of those kids on remote learning. Yeah, I become barely human. I become. So this right here is you cleaned up. Like yeah. This is, you're in better shape right now. I'm in better shape That's right good. now. My, I wasn't washing my hair. It was For real. Uh, I mean, I went up to like four or five days and then eventually Cam was like, well, I can't say what he called me because it's not appropriate. But <laughs> <laughs> You can tell me in the break. I looked like. Something, uh-huh. and he was right. <laughs> okay, you're like, fine, I'll step into the shower, yeah. fine. My thing, and this is the only point I'll make with you on St. Patrick's Day. Can you say lot lizard on the show? I believe you actually have before. Oh, okay, well, he said I look like a lot lizard. Okay, and people can look up what that means <laughs> if, they, if they don't know, right? 10-4, good buddy. He and you wasn't can, wrong. You can Google it. Um, I find, especially after a certain age, I get it when you're 21 or right. in college, it's a whole big excuse to go drink heavily with your friends or whatever. But when you're in your mid to late 20s and beyond, it gets a little embarrassing to continue down this path. And especially when people decide, I don't know when this was decided, that both weekends on yeah. either side of St. Patrick's Day counts as St. Patrick's Day. So people just go crazy, like way over the top for two consecutive weekends. I just don't think it's, I don't think it's great for business. Yeah, especially when you're an in bars. adult. Right. You're an adult. You can like, man, you, know, you, you can have some nine. drinks when you're feeling the vibe of some drinks. Generally, you don't have to wait to put your little green outfit on and, you know, drink the green. But you can buy food coloring if the green beer means that much to you. I mean, you can celebrate St. Patrick all I'll year. I have a wrong. green beer. I'm English, so like should I have an orange beer? Like, yeah. I'm Protestant. I won't. I will I will say happy St. Patrick's Day to those who celebrate. Please do so responsibly. And, you know, why not bring a little Finland into the equation and have a longer? Oh, I'm Polish, so quickly, I do celebrate Punchki Day. I had a Punchki Day off. What, what is that? It's like Polish Fat Polish Fat Tuesday. When was this Punchkis recently? Punchkis are these, yeah, because I was off. It was, was within the past two and a half weeks, and oh. I never had it a, 
a celebration because I'd always been working. And there's these big donuts. Like the idea is like you use up all the sugar and fat before Lent. I don't celebrate the, I don't participate in the fasting element, of course, but the, but the um, indulgence, I sure and did. You, you don't give anything up for Lent, do no. you? No. No, okay. I don't give anything up. Uh-huh. So mm-hmm. you, you go for the whole big Fat Tuesday celebration. Yeah, and then, and then life as usual to, uh, on Wednesday. Proceed to sacrifice nothing. <laughs> that sounds uh, about right. That sounds on brand. Uh, more of this hilarity and fun this evening on Gutfeld. Kat is, of course, a regular co-host. I'll be on the panel tonight, 11 p.m. Eastern Time, Fox News Channel. Great to see you, Kat. You too. See you there. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues right after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Happy hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Very grateful to have you listening every single day. 3 to 6 Eastern, GuyBensonShow.com. Podcasts always free. You know, I think this next topic qualifies. It's Woke Tales. Woke Tales. So this is a fun example of the boycott binge among progressives coming back to bite them. A local news source in San Francisco called Mission Local has this headline. San Francisco is now boycotting... Most of the United States, and they have a map, and they explain that the city council and city leadership, whenever a state enacts some sort of law that infuriates the woke progressive left, they rush out and they say, well, we're boycotting that state, and we're banning official travel to that state, and on and on it goes. And the result now is that a majority of the country, 28 states, are now being boycotted by San Francisco. And because of that, There's a constraint on the number of businesses that can be contracted to provide all sorts of services and products, and it's making the city more and more anti-competitive, and it's actually really frustrating people in the city and hamstringing San Francisco's ability to be successful and viable on top of all their other huge problems like crime, and that whole list is long. But this is a self-inflicted wound that they have – deliberately chosen to go with for purposes of wokeness to enforce this ideology and what they're doing is harming their city and the boycotts there's the map why did they start a bunch of them are because of lgbt related issues a bunch of them are because of abortion related issues others are about so-called voting rights so the places where san francisco can do business or send its employees on official travel it's really dwindling A minority of states now are still in the good graces of San Francisco. And I feel like the country just wants to say, you know what? It's mutual. You stay right where you are, San Francisco. Keep all of your nonsense right within the city limits, and we'll be just fine without you. Progressivism is destroying a great city. And I find this little woke flair amusing as well. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, back after this. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show from New York. Looking forward to Gutfeld tonight. See you there 11 Eastern on Fox News Channel. GuyBensonShow.com here with our free podcast every day available and easily downloadable. You can even subscribe if that's what you'd like. We think that's a great idea. GuyBensonShow.com. Here's a story in the Washington Post from this week that I wanted to read to you at length. For a couple of reasons. Number one, it once again vindicates 
various positions that we have taken on this show for more than a year. And a lot of the time we talk about schools and COVID and COVID theater versus sound science through the prism of Florida and what the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, has done down there. But it wasn't just DeSantis. It wasn't just Florida. There were other schools and other districts all around the country making much better decisions for their kids, for their students, than we saw in many other places. And yes, this might sound like a political statement, and in some ways it is. But generally, as a rule of thumb, the more blue... The more democratic a state or an area is in this country, the more harm was inflicted needlessly on children by ignoring science, especially once the 2020-2021 school year began. So last school year, where in the bluest areas of this country, schools in many cases were shuttered all year long again. Whereas they were open for business and thriving elsewhere. We've made this distinction between public and government schools in extremely liberal havens versus private schools. We've compared New York or Illinois with Texas and Florida. Here is a microcosm, a snapshot out of the state of Colorado. And I'm glad that the Washington Post wrote the story, honestly. It's probably too late for most students. Maybe this can be used as a cautionary tale for the future if anyone's thinking about snapping back to more closures and more restrictions if there's a new variant or seasonality comes back into play. But this is a retrospective by The Washington Post. Headline, these schools did less to contain COVID. Their students did better. These schools did less to contain COVID. Their students did better. Right there, we have a juxtaposition of conventional wisdom backed by an awful lot of indignation and bullying and preening versus outcome and actual well-being of the people that we were supposedly as a society protecting through the COVID containment policies that didn't actually work, but had terrible after effects, secondary impacts, externalities that are not just being discovered this week or this month or this year. They have been apparent and documented for a very long time, and we kept talking about them long before it was fashionable to do so or even really permitted in a number of venues. Influential ones at that. So the dateline in this story from the Post is Monument, Colorado. As school systems around the country were battening down for their first remote start of school in the fall of 2020, the Lewis Palmer District here was embarking on another kind of experiment. Elementary students would be in class full time sitting maskless at communal tables. The band program would resume in-person classes, saxophonists and flutists playing a few feet apart. High school football teams would practice and compete. While most of the nation kept students at home for part or all of last academic year, these schools in the suburbs of Colorado Springs, like thousands of others around the country, opened 
with the overwhelming majority of students in their seats. Masks were optional in elementary school. And although middle and high schoolers began with hybrid learning in November, high school-age students with significant special education needs were back in person five days a week. In the country's largest school systems, such as those in New York City, Los Angeles, D.C., and Chicago, my note, these are the aforementioned heavily Democratic areas, teacher unions and concerned parents fought plans to reopen. Public health officials warned that social distancing would save lives, and schools responded by devising hybrid programs or simply sticking with virtual learning. But over time, these measures also imposed costs. Today, students are contending with significant learning loss and mental health issues. So nothing that I've told you so far that I've read from this story should surprise you if you listen to The Guy Benson Show with regularity or even occasionally because we have been beating the drum on this. Back to the story. Yet thousands of school districts, typically small ones in conservative-leaning counties, reacted to the pandemic like Lewis Palmer District 38 did. Officials in this largely white and affluent school district of 6,600 students near the U.S. Air Force Academy argue they took the right approach in reopening schools. Listen to this. 6,600. So almost 7,000 kids, when you think about all the faculty, staff, everyone, administration, all in, you're probably in the ballpark of 7,000. No child was hospitalized with the virus. Two school system employees were admitted to hospitals, though contract tracers did not determine that those infections arose inside schools. So you had this district, thousands of people back in person, mask optional for the most part, for the entirety of last school year, and they had zero kids in the hospital two staffers in the hospital, and it was not clear that either one of those staffers actually contracted the disease at a school. And by the way, that's not luck. That's the risk profile. That is the risk profile of young kids that we've known from science, from the data, for quite a long time. We've also known for quite a long time that school buildings are not super spreaders and you are less likely significantly to get COVID at a school than in the community writ large. I feel like I've said those sentences almost verbatim countless times on this show, month after month after month. Here is an example, a snapshot of a district that did the opposite of the New York's, L.A.'s, D.C.'s, the Fauciites, and they succeeded, succeeded in a big way. And this is not just cherry-picking a single example that cuts against the grain of most of the data. This illustrates the data. Now listen to this. We just heard the health outcomes. What about the academic outcomes in this Colorado district? Overall, results from standardized tests show that average students in Lewis Palmer, the district, made gains in reading. While they lost ground in math, they performed better than average Coloradans. SAT scores remained steady. Quote, we didn't just exist through the pandemic, says the director of communications for the school district. We made progress through the pandemic. How many districts can say that? Well, actually quite a few. 
but they were being condemned and attacked every step of the way when, in fact, they were doing the right thing and following the actual science. The progress was being made where kids were in school with masks optional. That was the best combination of ingredients. And so many parts of this country forcefully rejected that successful combination, even after it was abundantly clear what the correct formula was. The school district supported many early decisions with a July 2020 academic study, so they were citing science, that found children under 10 didn't transmit the virus at high rates. That's according to the superintendent. Superintendent also saw early evidence emerging out of Europe that showed it was possible to open schools with relatively few outbreaks. Data and science is what drove these decisions, correct decisions. The health outcomes were good. The academic outcomes were great. I would argue life-saving in some cases. To some in the district, this was a leap of faith, and they got lucky. To others, the school system chased the right priorities, acted diligently, and followed health guidelines, doing what was necessary to give the community what it wanted, which was open schools. Now, this is also interesting. They did a survey of parents and teachers and found that by the beginning of last academic year, more than 60% of parents said they were very likely to want to return to in-person learning. Fewer than 10% of families said they were very unlikely to return. Listen to this sentence. More than 60% of teachers who are not unionized felt confident the school system could reopen schools safely. Just 15% disagreed. So you had parents pushing for this. You had a non-unionized base of teachers who were prepared to go back. And by the way, people who weren't had options to be at home. The district decided to require masks only in hallways for elementary school students and allowed them to go maskless in classrooms. Quote, we wanted to be as normal as possible, and children wearing masks is not normal, said an official in the school district. Here's another detail. School officials, teachers, and parents said people in the district rarely discuss their immunization status. Vaccination is not required to participate in any activity. Quote, we felt it was an infringement on staff confidentiality to ask about their vaccination status, says the superintendent. But we did encourage vaccines. Doesn't this all sound, what's the word I'm looking for? Rather enlightened? Smart? Data-driven? Non-hysterical? Now, the article goes on to profile some families. There was a mother who was upset that her son with a very serious condition, cystic fibrosis, she was begging the school district to require masks for everyone. She said the school wouldn't budge, so she kept her kids online. And she was upset, feeling like her kids' needs were not being met. But just to push back, she had an option for her children. Forcing everyone else into masks actually would not have made a significant difference, if any difference at all, based on the data that we know, that would have made her feel better. I can feel sympathy for her while also saying that the school district made the right call. She could decide for her kids to stay home and learn remotely without imposing a bunch of stuff on every kid in the district. And it took some guts for the people who ran this district to say no, and they had to, and they did. 
Then the piece profiles other families with students, for example, with special needs who desperately needed their children in the classrooms. Like a student with Down syndrome, a parent saying she needed to be back for her well-being, for her survival in some ways. And that was something that was available to that family. And there were people in surrounding counties, apparently, who were really angling, trying to figure out how can we get in on this? The word that comes up over and over again in this story is normal. The adults looked at the data, looked at the outcomes from around the country, around the world, in studies, et cetera, and they determined correctly that they could come very close to approximating normalcy for their children, for their students. They worked diligently to do precisely that, and they had outstanding health outcomes in these open schools. And they had much, much better academic and social outcomes in these schools than a lot of the people who, quote unquote, followed the capital S science. And had worse outcomes on both of those fronts. This piece should be bookmarked and saved for the moment, if it comes, God forbid, that you have influential people once again saying, hey, let's go back to these failures. Never, ever again. And I will give, again, some credit to the Washington Post for actually reporting this stuff because it absolutely blows a giant hole through so many talking points that were fed indignantly from people looking down their noses while getting things exactly wrong and doing a lot of damage along the way. The Guy Benson Show continues with the home stretch coming up. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Home stretch. Guy Benson Show. A couple months ago, we had John Andrasik here on the show, who is the lead singer of Five for Fighting. And he had written and performed a protest song about Afghanistan and the abandonment of Afghanistan and all those broken promises. And we played you the song here. We talked to him about it. He sent me last night a new song that he's written in praise of an ode to President Zelensky in Ukraine. They played it on Fox and Friends this morning. I want to play some of it for you here on the home stretch. Here is a tribute to the leader of Ukraine from Five for Fighting. Who is this comedian, his audience, more mass than men, this Superman Ukrainian, I don't know. Great grandson of the Holocaust, an eastern heart the West has lost, nail or carry up his cross, I don't know. Can one man save the world in a thousand years? Will they say your name or is this all in vain? Can one man save the world? Will you take my hand? Will you help me stand still in the end? Can one man save the world? 
You can check that whole song out online. That's John Andresik, and he sent that to me earlier, and I wanted to share it with you. In the meantime, before we go, I just had to take note, Mediaite reporting earlier, that Anna Delvey, the fake heiress and scam artist that we've talked about on this show, Inventing Anna is this big hit show on Netflix, the actual fake Anna Delvey, she has a different last name in real life, has been released from custody and deported back to Germany. And I will simply point out that mysteriously, producer Christine is off today. I know she says she's closing on the house or whatever that excuse might be, but she does a whole impression of this young woman. She's a big fan. I don't know. She also was talking about maybe getting sucked into the manipulations of Anna Delphi. I wonder if she's accompanying her back to Germany or even more likely the home of her ancestors, Russia. I'm mostly joking. I'm not quite sure what this conspiracy involving Christine is. I haven't mapped it out fully in my mind yet, but I just I just had to point it out that this happens on the same day. And we are approaching St. Patrick's Day. Christine out again. She was out last year around this time. Look, they're just questions. I'm just asking questions. That's all. And we will pose perhaps those questions tomorrow. Should Christine deign to join us back on the program? Should she show up for work tomorrow? We'll see. I'll be here in New York. Will she? Tune in to find out. Same time, same place on The Guy Benson Show. I'm on Gutfeld tonight, 11 Eastern on Fox News Channel. See you there. Back here on the radio tomorrow. Have a great night. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Dominich, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Dominich Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.